friends, Romans, countrymen. Lend me your ears. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is your friend, MC Lars, back once again with another episode. This is episode 30. It is Monday, March 25th, 2019. And today, we have one of the most famous game designers of all of video game history, Howard Scott Warshaw. Howard is famous for creating one of the most unfairly maligned video games of all time, E.T., the extraterrestrial for Atari, 1982, a game that he had five weeks to make and was frustrated a lot of people. Like some of the gameplay dynamics included one where he would constantly fall into these holes that were hard to get out of and et cetera, et cetera. But it was a very imaginative game. It was ambitious. Uh, Howard had created a game called Yar's Revenge, which was a hit at Atari, which actually is featured in the moment now as one of the most interesting video game pieces of art of all time. And we talk about this in the podcast. And so the Atari guys were like, okay, well, if you did Yar's Revenge, we think you can do like an interesting follow-up. Why don't you make a game about E.T., which was a hit? So we met with Spielberg, and Spielberg famously said, well, why don't you make a game kind of like Pac-Man? And Howard was like, no, we want to do something different. So legend has it they produced more games than there were consoles, and these games got buried in the Almogordo Desert in New Mexico because they didn't want these games being put into dumpsters behind video game retailers for people to take and then sell. So what did they do? They buried them in the desert. And this was ironic because one of the criticisms of the games was that E.T. kept falling into holes, then the game was buried in these holes in the desert. So there's a great movie called Atari Game Over uh, by this guy, Zach Penn. It came out in 2014. It kind of talks about the video game crash of 1983 and uses the Atari video game burial as a jump-off point. So, Howard Scott Warshaw is featured heavily in the movie, of course, and I learned about his life. I learned he later went on to become a successful therapist, and he calls himself the therapist of Silicon Valley. And he went on to help other you know, engineers and nerds. He says, I used to entertain nerds, now I help them. That's a quote of his, and we talk about that. And um, it's an interesting guy, because you know a lot of the themes of the podcast are people who have shifted careers in a changing media landscape. And Howard is clearly someone who has done that. He's written a few books. He's working on another one about this game and about this story. And one of the cool things he talks about is how being a therapist is a return to authorship. One person connecting with another person. And back in the day, one person would create a vi one video game. And now it's like, you know, games are designed by committee. And uh, we talk about how he was one of the first students to ever graduate with a computer science degree at Tulane and how he loved how video games were a mixture of text and art. And it's interesting how guys like Roger Ebert used to write when video games came out, this is not art. This is not an experience that we can consider art. It's just like a different form of entertainment. It hasn't evolved to that place yet. But with, you know, different stories in the evolution of video games, I think most people would say that video games are indeed art. And this is, we can attest to this because Yar's Revenge is in the MoMA, right? So there's proof right there. So anyway, this is my interview with Howard Scott Warshaw. I am flying to England Friday for the 10-year anniversary tour of This Gigantic Robot Kills. What? We start in Southampton. Uh, if you go to nerdcoretour.com, the dates are up there. I'm with Cuckoo Kangaroo and Mega Ran. And we're going to end this episode with Julius Caesar with Dan Bull, which we premiered on Spotify Friday. And uh, this song I'm super proud of. I thought it was appropriate because we're going to the UK. I want to, of course, thank my Patreon supporters, Jeremy, Lucas, and Lisette, my new supporters, and my old supporters, Thomas, Mick, and Alan. And uh, yeah, so 
That's what's up. This is my interview with Howard Scott Warshaw. You can learn more about him from his website, hswarshaw.com. And also, he's very funny on Twitter. If you follow him on Twitter, he's got a lot of uh, good tweets. It's H.S. Warshaw. So here we go. Check it out. Thank you all for tuning in and enjoy the interview. Okay, here we go. All right. Passion with a balanced perspective. I'm here with Howard Scott Warshaw, artist, writer, engineer, therapist. It's an honor to meet you, Howard, for real. Andrew, it's really cool to be here. Thank you so much for having me. We, there's so much to talk about. And I often, when I was listening to your other interviews, I found a lot of the people interview you start with your work with Atari. And I'm wondering, what if we were to talk about your work as the role of the Silicon Valley therapist and go backwards? Sure. I mean, that's an interesting point you're making because, you know, what's, it's the fundamental interactive experience is conversation, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah. the ultimate interactive experience. That's the one that it pre predates computers, uh, predates all media, right? Originally, there was just people engaged with each other. That's the essence of interaction. And it's funny you say, you know, well, what if we started now and worked our way back? Because that's actually how I approach therapy. I believe, you know, the, the way I put it is no problem ever got solved in the past. Problems only get solved in the present and in the future. So that's where I start my work. When I'm working with a client, the first thing we do is say, what's going on right now? What's the issue? And then we'll access the past as we need to, to gain insight or to fill out information. Mm. But I'm a very present focused and uh, interactive therapist. I guess interaction is something, it's a theme that's been through everything I've ever done. You said something great on one of the podcasts you were on. You said, used to entertain nerds, now you help them. My life has come full circle. <laughs> that's what I like to say. Because gaming has come full circle. It's kind of interesting. Gaming started with uh, very simple uh, handheld devices that were trivial. And then it got to consoles, and consoles got bigger and bigger and bigger and more monolithic. And the teams grew and got huge. And it got way past the point where a person, like when I was at Atari, one person made a game. And that got lost. And then at one point recently with handheld devices being as sophisticated as they are now, it was possible once again, now people can develop apps. One person can develop an app, a fun game and put it out. So now gaming is not only monolithic, but it's also back to the essential work of authorship that was so much joy for me when I was making games. And so just like gaming has come full circle back to the one screen actioner, I always feel like I, yeah, I've come full circle in that I used to uh, entertain nerds and now I actually work to make their lives better as a therapist. Silicon Valley is a place where you can be the best, brightest in your town. You come here. In Silicon Valley is a very weird place <laughs> uh, in that it is, I, Silicon Valley is the place where the world's best, brightest, and most ambitious people come to be average. You show up here and you've always been the top of the heap. You've always been number one. You come here and you're just another person here in Silicon Valley. Yeah. I believe it's quite possibly the highest average IQ ever assembled on the face of the earth in one geographic area. 
And it's, it's not like there aren't smart people in other areas, but because of the geography of Silicon Valley, the peninsula that it's essentially on, it's kind of funny to think of a valley and a peninsula. <laughs> it's a valley that got flooded. Right. <laughs> but uh, it's there's such a concentration of people that everybody who's not really in the game and not actively engaged kind of gets squeezed out. The rents are ridiculous. So most mm. people, the average person, where there are pockets of people who provide services, who do other things, you know, there's a, more of a full spectrum in places like New York or Washington and, and things like that. Here, the geography has made it so that the people who aren't really at the top uh, income-wise, are, are pushed very far away. So it creates a very odd, some people would call it a bubble, but it's just an interesting environment where you have just a lot of sharp teeth feeding on each other sometimes is the way I think of it. As an undergrad at Stanford, I, I felt like that as, as a student, that I was, you know, the star of high school and it was very, I was mediocre all of a sudden. There's, you know? a, there's <laughs> a number of places where that happens, like yeah. elite schools, uh, that happens. The NFL, you know, professional sports is another place. The people who have been the absolute top uh, talent in their neighborhood, in their in their high school, in their college, you know, you reach the you reach the plateau. You reach the level where everybody starts there, and then you see who's where. And it's uh, but for people in Silicon Valley, it's a real challenge. Yeah, psychologically. Right. When you've been the best all the time and suddenly you find your average, uh, that can be a real ego hit. It's like Hollywood where things are, it's an illusion in some way, maybe that you, you kind of help balance people's, they have these amazing, broad, incredible dreams. And sometimes like actors who move to Hollywood to become stars, things don't necessarily work out for your app or your startup. Right. And yeah, like in Hollywood, you have a lot of people, you know, the, the great joke that I always like is that. You know, well, I'm an actor, but that's just till I get my big break in waiting, <laughs> right? And right. in Silicon Valley, you have people who are like, well, I'm just kind of hanging out as an employee until I find the startup I want to pop with. Yeah. And and that's what people do, but not everyone does. You know, for every person who really makes it big in Silicon Valley, there's thousands who don't. And that's most of the people. The stories we hear of the ones who make it, and that's the lore and the lure in a lot of ways. Mm. But uh, the truth is there's a lot of people who – there's people who crash and burn. There's people who really blow the roof off. And the vast majority of people are people who are in the middle where they're doing well enough to keep going. But they're not really crossing a decision line, right? They're not really exploding or crashing. And that that's a strain. Right there's a stress to thinking I'm always about to I'm always on the verge of but I'm never arriving, and so I work with people along those lines quite a bit. There's a lot of uh, disappointment, disillusionment. Uh, there are people who succeed who have the crisis of arriving and reaching their dreams and then feeling unfulfilled. Wow. So yeah. there's all kinds of different things that can happen. And then there's, of course, there's a lot of the dealing with failure, which is something I have a tremendous amount of experience in, I'm happy to say. You have this perspective of the engineer who you minored in theater as an undergrad, right? Yeah. You, you knew you were a good listener. You had always wanted to maybe be a therapist. Is that true? I had always wanted to be a therapist. When I was yeah. 17 years old, a very good friend of mine who lives in Portland now, uh, we were going to create our own personality theory. 
when we were in high school, we used to talk <laughs> about, we're going to create our own personality theory. And then he went off in one direction, I went off in another, and we both kind of went far afield. And the whole psych thing just sort of disappeared for quite a while. And what's kind of funny is he ultimately married a therapist. <laughs> he, he didn't go into therapy, but he married a therapist. Yeah. And I ultimately became a therapist, but it was, it was a very winding and uh, amblin road. Uh, Amblin, so that to speak. left me there, yeah, <laughs> yeah. as it were. Yeah. As someone who studied economics, your time is now being valued and you put, you're putting in work and you're getting this return on your investment maybe as a therapist. That's an interesting take on it. Yeah. Uh, I do have a background in economics. Actually, I think that served me at Atari, interestingly okay. enough. Yeah. Uh, of all the things, like I, I, had a, I wrote a book about... Uh, got to do well in college called conquering college. Yeah. Cause I had a, quite a college career. I graduated, uh, uh, Tulane university in three years with a double major in math and economics, a minor in theater. And, uh, then I went back for a one year master's in computer engineering. So in my four years at Tulane, I had two degrees in three subjects with another minor and was ready to explode on the, uh, on the, the productive scene, I had avoided computers mm. like the plague. I, I never really wanted to get into computers. Uh, for some reason, I just thought I'm going to be in business. I'm going to go in a business direction. But as I was working my way through economics, somebody said, you have to have computers. You got to have computers. If you're going to go anywhere. You know, if you're going to be anybody in this business, kid, you got to have computers. Yeah. And so I took a computer class. It was the middle of a semester. And I walked into the, uh, the guy the teacher's office who was teaching that course. And I was, because I had done well in my freshman year, uh, I was a quote, Tulane scholar. Okay. Which didn't really mean much of anything, except you get to go to a wine and cheese at the president's house at the beginning of the semester. But it's, it means you're supposed to have academic options. Yeah. So I walked into this guy's office, you know, kind of like a jerk, I guess. <laughs> and I said, Hey, I'm a Tulane scholar and I'd like to add your course, you know, in the middle of a 14 week semester. And he was like, he told me subsequently, because we really came to know each other well. And he told me subsequently, he goes, oh, here comes this guy. And this was in New Orleans. And I'm a screaming New York metropolitan kind of person. Uh -huh. And he's like, I'm going to let this Yankee hang himself. <laughs> so that's what he was thinking. But he just said, oh, you want to add my course in the middle of the thing? He says, okay. So he gave me the book. And he told me where the computer lab was and said, you know, here's the course. So... And I said, fine. And I took the book and I went to the computer lab. And that evening I did the entire first half of the course. It was like, wow, it totally just, it was magic for me. Yeah. It was just something that made perfect sense. You know, sometimes you run into something you're supposed to learn, but you realize you've always known it. And that's what computer science was for me. It just made sense. Yeah. So I finished the first half of the course that night. The next night I went back and finished the rest of the course. So I basically, it was a half unit course, but I finished the whole course in two nights and <laughs> started to deal with him. And I think he, it kind of shifted his attitude from, oh, this doofus, you know, we'll let him fall to like, huh, I may be able to use this guy. <laughs> think, yeah. Yeah. Because he was trying to start a computer science department because there weren't computer science departments back then very much. There was occasional computer courses. Right. And he wanted to start a department at Tulane. So we sort of found benefit with each other because this was the only level at which we were going to meet. Cause I was like this New York 
oriented, hyper pumper pumper kind of wanting to go and bust through and do everything. And he was, he was a really odd sort too, because he was this sort of laid back Southern barbecue kind of hick who happened to have a PhD in, <laughs> in uh, chemical engineering. Wow. Yeah. And, but there was some level at which we connected, we realized we could really benefit from each other. So we did. Mm. And he facilitated me in getting a, a one-year master's, which is what I really wanted to do. And so I became 50% of the first graduating class of the Tulane University School of Engineering uh, graduate program in uh, computer science and engineering. Me and Archibald J. Greffer. That was the other <laughs> half of the class. Archie was a very cool guy. What was New Orleans like? Like this would have been the 80s or 70s? This is the 70s. Yeah, yeah, this was like 70. I got there in 75 and was there through 79. Right, okay. And uh, New Orleans is a very interesting place. Yeah. For me, New Orleans is the epitome of a place I'd love to visit but wouldn't want to live there. Uh -huh. So going to school there for me was perfect. Yeah. And uh, But it's not the South. You know, there's the South. We think of it cl classically the South. And New Orleans is certainly in the South. Uh -huh. But New Orleans is a city that has a culture totally unique to itself. It's a really, it's like a little hole in the middle of the South that's totally different from anything around the South. If you go out to Baton Rouge or Biloxi or any of these places around there, you're in the South. Uh-huh. Right? But <laughs> New Orleans is its own place. And it really was very unique and was a very interesting place to be. And so you then moved to the Bay Area to work for Hewlett Packard? I did, yeah. yeah. I got some offers from uh, a couple of companies. I got Hewlett Packard flew me out for an interview and then made me an offer that day. Wow. And I said, yeah, I'll take it. So I had an offer. And this was, this was my introduction to business ethics that was kind of interesting. Because I got the offer. I accepted the offer. I was all set. So I'm all happy. I'm going to go after I graduate. I'm going to go to Hewlett Packard in California. I always wanted to go to Hewlett, California. Uh -huh. And I'll tell you, growing up in New Jersey, which is where I grew up, people were always telling me, you know, you really belong in California. And in New Jersey, that wasn't really a nice thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel you. I know you mean. But but they were right. I mean, right. California was a place I needed to be. And so I was very excited at the prospect. And then a recruiter from IBM called me up. And he says, you know, hey, we'd like you to come out and interview. I said, well, you know, I could. I said, but I really feel like I'd be kind of wasting your time because I've already accepted an offer from Hewlett Packard. And he goes, well, you haven't started working there yet, have you? And I go, no. Mm -hmm. And he goes, well, then it's not settled yet. You could still come out here and talk to us. And I was thinking, so he doesn't care that I've already made a commitment to someone else. Yeah. He's totally okay with yeah. that. So I thought, that's interesting. Yeah. But I thought, okay, but it's true. And I, But then I said, you know, I said, I really don't think IBM's the place for me. Because I am and have always been at my root a wild and crazy guy. <laughs> and I don't think, although I was technically capable of, of working at IBM, I don't think the culture would have matched for me. So I was telling him, I said, I don't really think IBM's my kind of place. And he said, oh, I know what you're saying. You think we're all buttoned down and stuff like that and too uh, conservative. And I said, well, yeah. I said, I'm kind of flamboyant you know, for, for an engineer. And he goes, oh, well, he goes, I have to tell you that things have really loosened up at IBM. I uh -huh. go, yeah, really? And he goes, yeah. He goes, like, for instance, a lot of our engineers, they don't even have to wear ties anymore. And I, <laughs> I kind of laughed. <laughs> I said to him, I said, I don't think we're talking about the same thing here. And I'm sure that I would have gotten totally bounced from IBM if I was tried, if I was myself at IBM. 
and it sounds like so and you also made the right ethical choice i mean there's a question there if you had you'd said yes to hewlett packard do you feel like if you'd turned them down that would have been ethically that would have haunted you maybe people would have talked about it you think or it might have i came to learn that that's standard practice in fact you know it's a very common practice you know to go and get an offer from another company just to try and jack up your salary where you are. There's a lot of things that are typically done here that I would never have considered fundamentally ethical. Yeah. But, you know, ethics, you know, when in Rome kind sure. of a thing. There are some things I won't do, but uh, there was a lot of things that I would have thought that's really doesn't seem right that were very common practice as I came to learn in business. Was, uh, getting into business was very, becoming an engineer in Silicon Valley, having an economics degree mm. was very interesting. Because it gave me a very different take. Because I kind of wanted to look more at the business stuff than a lot of engineers do. Yeah. I was more engaged in the politics than a lot of engineers were. Yeah. Because I had more people skills than a lot of engineers are interested in having. Not that a lot of engineers, not all engineers are on the autism spectrum, like some people believe. Right. But a lot of engineers are just not interested in politics or engaging in that kind of gaming. And uh, I've always found it interesting. So, and that kind of interactive experience (laughs) of engaging with people on that level. I mean, that was the therapist in me coming through. That's uh, everywhere I went, every, everything I did, the therapist in me and the economist in me were both things that kept showing up. Yeah. That's incredible. And it, and it allowed you to be in a place where that combination of skill sets, you know, you had such an impact on the history of Silicon Valley. And a lot of people might not know this, but you developed some of the early packet technology at Hewlett Packard that was really formative in, in the internet. Am I right? In that? uh, that's true. Yeah. That's I mean, awesome. I'm, I'm not saying I'm Al Gore. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did write some packets, which actually I did some of that in college. Wow. I had some very unusual experience for college because when I went to college, you know, way back in the day, uh, computers were a new thing. It uh-huh. wasn't like all over the place. And not just computers, but I was working on microprocessors, which were brand new. So to And I had some networking experience. So to come out of college, uh, having microprocessor experience and networking experience was very unusual. Mm. So I was lucky in that I was able to have uh, my pick of a number of places to work. I went to Hewlett Packard to work on their networking stuff. But microprocessors is what really turned me on. That was what re- was really exciting. And Hewlett Packard was mainframe stuff doing networking. And I just felt like I died. Yeah. It was all my passion, all oh. the excitement uh, left me at Hewlett Packard. And I thought, what's going on? And then I, it didn't occur to me, I need to go find another job. I was just kind of bummed. And th- is the story true that someone said, you seem like the kind of person who would do great at a company like Atari? Because one of your friend's wives worked at Atari? Right. So yeah. what happened was, yeah, there was, because I used to act out some here and there. Like I said, uh-huh. I was kind of a wild and crazy guy. And Hewlett Packard was more tolerant of that than IBM, fortunately. Okay, yeah. But it was still pretty wild. <laughs> so people would go home sometimes and tell Howard stories. At least that's what I had heard. And so a guy, a really cool guy named Vince, uh, came up to me one day. And he was in my little group in our bullpen, you know, with the, all the desks laid out. And he came up to me one day and he goes, you know, I was telling my wife Howard's story last night. <laughs> And she said, that sounds just like what goes on all the time where I work. And I said, well, where's that? And he said, it's Atari. That's how I first heard of Atari. Ah. I did not hear of Atari for games or things like that. Oh, wow. I heard of it as a place that's a wild environment 
that uh, a coworker's wife had mentioned. And so I just sort of ran with that. So I called Atari up and said, hey, I want to come talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Talked my way in and uh, went and interviewed at engineering and interviewed with a whole bunch of people. It all seemed very positive, and I was doing very well, I thought, with all the interviews. And then I was sitting at my desk at Hewlett-Packard, and the manager at Atari called me and said, you know, I, I don't think we're going to make you an offer. And I was like, what? What do you mean? I said, I think we're missing a really good job match here. And he's like, well, he goes, there's a few things. We're just not quite sure. I said, look, I said, you, I think this is a really good job match. I said, what's, what's the problem? What's the issue? Let uh -huh. me know. So he first says, he goes, well, he goes, your salary, you know, is a little, I said, make me an offer. I said, whatever it is. I ended up taking a 20% cut in pay to go there. He goes, well, we're not really looking for anybody until, this was like December, early December. He goes, we're not really looking for anybody until into January. I said, I could use some time off. That's okay. I said, I'll start then. And I just wore him down. Right, right. And everything he said, because I, I had to be there. There was something about this thing with Atari. I didn't know much about it, but I knew this was a place I had to be. And so I basically talked him into giving me a reduced salary and a probationary period to let me come in and see what could happen. And then I got to Atari, and the first thing I did was they assigned me they assigned me a game a coin up conversion to do and the first thing I did you know here I am this guy who's begged his way in I'm on probation you know please just let me do anything he goes okay here's your assignment I said that assignment is no good let me do something else yeah and uh but he was cool about it. I mean because I gave him reason I said look this is gonna suck for these reasons and he heard me and so I, I said I could do this instead and he was like okay go ahead and try it and that was uh, the beginning of what became Yars Revenge. Because you basically said, this thing you're assigning me, I can make better, and here's why, right? Exactly. You had that vision and, and that combination of the artists in you, and also, I, I don't know if you call it social engineering, but the way to read a situation and sell your brand, like it seems like throughout your career, that's been an incredible asset matched with your technical proficiency. Would you agree? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, well, you operate... In technology, there's two levels of it, right? You operate on the tech and you operate on the people who are doing the tech. Yeah. And most people who do tech are only operating on the tech. Uh, I've always been very interested in both. But the other thing, the thing that was really amazing about Atari that I didn't know going in, but I came to learn that was super valuable was there was another mixture that it brought about. And that's the mixture of tech and art. Hmm. Right. In uh, game making, it was a very uh, challenging technical environment, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. But because I like the puzzle aspect, but there was also this thing of you have to make it fun. And I, I always liked games. I didn't play much video games initially, but I always liked games. I always I loved to be entertained. Right? And the idea of making entertainment, I mean, I had a theater minor. It's not like I don't want to be an entertainer. Right. And so this was an opportunity to mix those in a way that not many places in Silicon Valley offer, particularly back then. I remember you called it a sensory experience that evokes a certain experience in the user, right? Kind of this alchemy where... That's how I view a video game. There's yeah. a number of ways I have to look at a video game. And yeah. one is that it's, yeah, it's a sensory uh, experience designed, like you said, to... Or like I said, I guess yeah, you said, right? <laughs> you know, it's a sensory experience designed to evoke some kind of a specific response in in the player, which I keep calling users because I'm, I'm a tech dude. Yeah, but it's uh, and that's true. But another way to look at a video game that I think is interesting is it, at its essence, a video game is a biofeedback loop. 
That's really what a video game is, right? Because if you think about it, a person holding a controller, right? You manipulate the controller and that sends signals into the computer. The computer calculates what your, those signals mean, modifies the audio and the video on a screen and, and displays that to the user. Okay, or the player. So the player then sees that, and because of what they're seeing and how they decode that, mm. they then change how they manipulate the controller, and the loop continues. It's a loop, right? And it's like I, everything flows, you know, from my brain to my hands, into the controller, into the computer, through the display, back to me, into my brain. And that loop keeps going and going. Now, that's a meditative experience. Sure. On some levels. And it's interesting to look at it that way. And then what's the quality of the meditative experience? What's happening? Like when people, you know, there's there's a thing like flow or being in the zone. And there's a thing that I like to say is like when you're in the flow, when you're in the zone in a video game, uh, you're, you're playing and you're not aware you're playing because you are 100% in, devoted to playing. You're not sapping any of your consciousness off to pay attention to you playing. You're not watching yourself play. You're just playing. Right, right. And when you do that, you're doing great. Yeah. Usually people do great. And the moment people go, oh, look, I'm doing really great, they usually die. Right? Yeah. <laughs> because as soon as we put less than 100% of ourselves into the process, we lose something and we falter and we slip. And that's a great metaphor for life in a lot of ways. You know, how much can you completely devote yourself to a task? And if you're not devoting yourself completely to a task, are you pulling enough away to make the difference between succeeding or failing in a certain endeavor? And uh, in fact, that's a lot of what I do in therapy is help people really understand where they're putting their attention and energy. And is it really 100% where you think it's going? Mm. Or is it really only a smaller percentage where you think it's going and too much of it is getting distracted or wasted in other places? And if you could recall that energy and put it back on task, uh, how much more successful would you be? So, you know, I guess life imitates everything. I remember reading that people who were great gamers are often um, great workers and find creative solutions to problems, you know, in the workforce. Uh, what do you think? That can be true. Yeah. That can be true. It depends on the game. Some sure. games demand creativity. Some games demand focus. Some games demand uh, repetitive uh, act action. Some games are about, ex uh, they're like acting, like Pac-Man. Okay, so Pac-Man is what you call a pattern game, right? Yeah. There's a pattern. So the people who really succeed at Pac-Man learn the patterns, and then the game is just a question of executing the pattern. It's not a, you're not dynamically figuring out what to do moment to moment. It's you're acting. There's a script for it, and can you do the script really well? Can you be a great actor mm. or not? Mm, okay. Right? Yeah. Whereas other games, there's a randomness to it. You're faced with a new challenge, and it's about quickly processing and adjusting to a new situation and responding to that. That's a different thing to do, right? So some games require different parts of your brain or your personality or your focus than others. So when somebody says, are they good at games or not? You know, I want to know, well, what game? Great. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Because some games, different games require different skills. And you've done so many different types of games. And I want to go through three of your greatest hits, but Yars Revenge, I remember, first of all, hearing that it's in the MoMA now, right? As a canonized uh, game. Yes. One of my 
bucket list items. You know, one of my dreams, a lot of, number of amazing <laughs> things have come to me because of Atari. That's awesome. And, and one of them was I always dreamed that it would be really cool to be uh, an exhibiting artist in uh-huh. a major museum. Uh-huh. And, uh, but I don't paint, I don't sculpt, I don't do any of the kind of stuff that would end up in a museum. I used to think, I don't know how I'm going to work that out, but it would be really cool. And then one day I found out that uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York selected Yars Revenge to be part of uh, their you know, modern art experience. And, and bam, and there it is. Now you look up exhibiting artists in MoMA oh, and I'm on the list. I thought, wow, that was just so cool. And then, of course, you know, E.T. ends up getting buried in the New Mexico desert. But I like breadth, right? So I have one game that's in the Museum of Modern Art and another game that's like the subflooring of the New Mexico desert. I just like having that kind of breadth. The agony and the ecstasy. <laughs> well put. Um, one of the things I love about Yar's Revenge is how you made the code, this flickering light screen in the middle. You know, actually, that's very cool because that's a great example of how economics serve me. You wouldn't uh. think that's the answer to that question. <laughs> but it's a really great example of how economics was the most valuable part of my background when programming uh, on the VCS. Because, and it's true that that, uh, the ion zone, the flickering ion zone in the center of the screen is actually the code from the cart, which Mm. actually got to be a battle with legal a little bit because they didn't, they thought, what are you doing? You're putting the code, we're blowing our copyright and stuff as if someone's going to be able to actually write it down and capture it. And and it wasn't all the code. It was just a code from a certain segment. But anyway, that didn't end up being a problem, but it was kind of funny that that was the concern. But the reason I did it, I wanted a visual effect. And when I approach making video games, I don't approach it so much as an engineer as I do a movie maker. I've always been a huge movie buff and movie fan. And, uh, and one of the things in movies that you learn in movie making is that it's a lot cheaper to give the impression of something happening than it is to actually make it happen. Right. So, you know, the classic example in a movie is like you have people standing on a dock with a strong light. So you have some wood on the floor. You have a big light that looks like the sun above them and you turn on a wind machine. Okay. So it looks like there's all this wind blowing and then you play a big foghorn. Right. And, oh, you're standing on a pier and look, there's a ship pulling up. Yeah. Yeah. But in reality, you just have some people on a sound stage with a, with a fan. Okay. Right. So that's much more economical. So on the 2600, I mean, economics, a lot of people think of economics as the science of money and stuff, but it isn't. Economics is the science of allocating scarce resources. That's what economics is about. Mm. And if there was ever a scarce resource, the 2600, the Atari VCS system was a scarce resource. We had only about, and when I started, it was like 4K. It was, you could only have 4K of code. And that was in a ROM. And then RAM, which is the place, that's the kind of memory you can update and change and keep track of. So you want to keep someone's score, you have to keep that in RAM. You mm. want to keep someone's position where they are, you have to keep that in RAM. You only got 128 bytes of RAM, which, you know, to people who have some perspective on computing, that's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's a very, very, very small amount of memory. Yeah. And... uh so the whole program was very, very small. You didn't have much to work with. And then, and the screen resources weren't, you didn't have many pieces, many graphic elements to work with. So 
anytime you have to add some animation or a graphic or something, that takes up extra space that you can't use for something else. So there's a lot of trade-offs you have to make. So when I wanted to do some kind of a graphic effect, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think, well, what can I create and then how am I going to try and pretend to get some other resources to display it and stuff? There was a lot of complicated decisions you could go through. What I would think is, what's already sitting there that I can just reuse? How can I retask things and, and, and reutilize things that are already there? And what I realized was, okay, so there's these uh, things called playfield registers or whatever, and you need graphics to put into them. So instead of having to make up some graphic and take up more space, I thought, you know, I need something that's a pseudo-random kind of thing anyway. The code is just a bunch of bits that flop around here and there. Yeah. So I just started grabbing the code wow. instead of graphics and throwing them not only in the graphics register, but also in the color register. And oh. that's why it like it flickers and... There's a number of reasons why it flickers, but that's why it's, it's glowing and it's constantly changing color because I'm just taking essentially kind of random data, just throwing it in a couple of registers, which is saving me a lot of time while I'm running on the screen because the 20, most, most games have what's called a bitmap, which is you go and you operate on this area of memory to paint a picture and then you tell the screen, go ahead and display and it does it automatically and you go do other stuff. Yeah. On the VCS, you have to actually be drawing. There is no time off while the computer does other stuff for you. Uh. So 75% of the time you have to calculate in a VCS game is spent actually drawing the screen. So you only have 25% of the time to do all your other game logic and everything. Wow. So it's just it was an amazingly tight and ridiculously restricted kind of environment, which for most people would be uncomfortable or even abhorrent. But... I loved it. Right? Yeah. I liked the challenge. And I wanted to do things no one had seen. I just wanted to say, hey, I want to really just figure out something, not to show other people up, but just to say, you know, I like the way my brain works is I look at a common situation. I try to see the thing that people don't see. And it's not like I'm trying to see what people haven't seen. It's just for some reason, when I look at stuff, I tend to see stuff that other people, it just hasn't occurred to them. Yeah. You know, so I'm the person who, you know, we go around the room, we say, well, what do you see with this? Or what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? And when they come to me, I'll say what it is. And everybody will go like, what? <laughs> you, know, you, you saw what? You know, where did that come from? That makes you an artist. Yeah. And yeah. a client. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it is yeah. interesting. It's, uh, it is a fresh view. Yeah. And, and I try to bring that to whatever it is. So when doing the stuff on the VCS, I just looked at the basic, like when they asked me, where do you want to work? When they did hire me, he said, what system do you want to work on? And I didn't know anything from their different systems. So I just said to him, I said, look, I said, what's the most primitive system you have? Because that's what I'd rather work on. Mm. Because the one thing I hate is going from a more sophisticated system to a less sophisticated system. Right, it's 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 more interesting to go the other way. Mm, okay, yeah. So I figured if I'm ever going to work on the most primitive system, let's start there, and that was the VCS at the time. So that's how it was decided I would be on the VCS. That's awesome. And speaking of pushing boundaries, two other super historical things about that game were the first game with a backstory. You wrote the comic book and the story. I did. And your Easter egg. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it was definitely not the first. Easter eggs are an interesting thing, but yeah. there, was, there was a lot of first. Yars Revenge right. had a lot of first, and I was really proud of the fact that uh, I did some breakthrough stuff. There's a yeah. lot of things. Like, remember, anytime you, it was the, Yars Revenge was the first game with pause mode. Oh, right. It was yeah. the first game with pause. So anytime you pause a video game, just say, thanks, Howard. <laughs> 
And uh, because it never really occurred to people, right? Because coin-op games, you don't want to pause mode in a coin-op. You need people to keep dropping quarters. And whenever a new medium comes out, the first thing we do is we replicate the old medium, right? So when the home console comes out, the first thing you do is start copying coin-ops. That's why you saw so many coin-op copies. And uh, coin-ops don't have pause mode, so it never really never occurred to anybody to put pause mode in. Yeah, I came about to pause mode because it was a convenience for the way I wanted to do the game. But um, the story is a whole other thing. Like the naming of Yars, which didn't happen until towards the end, uh, I found out the kind of names they were looking at for the game because we knew it wasn't going to be Star Castle, which was the original game that was assigned. It was already way past that. It was Ray backwards, right? Well, the name Fuck. actually turned out to be Ray backwards, right? Yeah. And, and the Rayzac solar system is Kazar. So I used the name of the CEO. Oh. And used and worked that into the story, and then I figured it'd be better to have a story and a game than just a game. So I actually ended. So I wrote a whole story. I wrote like a seven or eight page sci-fi story about how the Yars came to be who they are. They were originally house flies that mutated over time on the first interstellar journeys, and they wiped out the humans and took over the stuff, and they took over the solar system. But now there's a monster that's coming to go after them. Awesome. And that's the <laughs> battle. So that's where Yars came from, and. Uh, it was cool, and it turned out to be something. I didn't actually write the comic book. I wrote this story, and then they got some people in art and production to then take that, and and they kind of dumbed the story down mm. and uh, put out a comic book with it. But it was the first time that had ever happened. It was the first time a game had a backstory, and that was a really interesting thing. And it also led to another first, was it was the first time a programmer at Atari was ever credited with a game. Ah. which is another sore point at Atari, and people were vying for that. It wasn't like that was the goal to try and get it, but I saw an opportunity to make it happen. But the thing, the fact was that since uh, I had written the story and that sold the whole thing, you know, the whole concept of Yars' Revenge, so they came out with credits not for the game but for the comic book. And in the comic book, one of the credits they listed was the game. So when I first saw some of the production copies, it said, you know, it, I had a credit for the game, and there, and then someone else was credited with the story. Mm-hmm. And so I actually went to them. I said, hey, I wrote the story. I said, why am I not getting credit for the story? And they looked at me, and they said, and I think quite reasonably, they said, you can have one credit on this game. What would you like it to be? <laughs> the story or the game? So I said, I don't take the game, please. You I'll chose take the game wisely. For <laughs> you know? And now, but now this truth is out that you came up with the story too. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. a lot of people know that, but yeah. you know, the guy who wrote the, who did, somebody did write the comic book and they yeah. deserve to be credited also. So I thought that was cool, but it was just, it was very interesting. And your initials being the Easter egg. So the Easter egg, Easter eggs are an interesting phenomenon. The person yeah. who originated the Easter egg is Warren Robinette. Warren Robinette did the game Adventure, which was an incredible contribution, right? This is a genre-defining piece. And he made Adventure, and he had this thing in there where you could go and find uh, his name printed out. And the truth is that most people who were doing games back then would find some way of inserting something in there that had their initials or their name in some way or another. And there was a reason for that. And the reason was, like we said, Atari wouldn't give wouldn't credit programmers. Atari didn't want people to know who was doing the games. They wanted the game to be an Atari game, and that's mm. all. Mm. But suppose you're going to interview somewhere else. They go, well, what have you done? You say, oh, I did this game and that game. Well, how do we know you did this game? You know, How do you prove uh. you did a game? Because Atari's not going to say you did it. Wow, yeah. 
So what the idea was you put something in the game that only you know about. So if anybody ever questions your authorship, you can demonstrate it because like, who else is going to put a secret thing in the game with your initials, right? Or your name. So people had different ways to do it. Some people actually put their name in ASCII in the cards. You'd have to actually look at the memory of the card to see the name. Wow. So most people would make it a play thing. Somehow you play something, you do something crazy in the game and you get that. And I had that in originally. But then I thought, let's make it bigger. Why not make it a marketing hook? So I went and actually talked to Mark and I said, you know, people put their little signatures in the games and stuff, which they didn't necessarily know, but it wasn't, you know, they, they would never be able to do anything about it anyway. Yeah. They couldn't read the code or anything. I said, look, this is going on. Why don't we make it a feature, mm. right? Why don't we make it? So, so I created this thing that's the ghost of Yars. And so, and I, and I made it so you find my initials, HSW, but I put HSWWSH. I did that for two reasons. One, I already have the graphics for the HDS and the W, so repeating them backwards is no problem, and I had more space there, so I just used it. The other one was it became a key, right? Because the naming of the game, when I went through the whole thing with the naming, I decided I'm going to make, you know, Yar is Ray and Rayzak is Kazar. Yeah. So it became a key to tell you that, you know, if you spell things backwards in some of the other naming conventions of the games, you might find some interesting stuff. It was a key to helping, like, the, the mirror of your initials? Yeah. yeah, it was just my initials and my initials backwards. But the, so that should tell you that okay, well, when you see Yar, spell it backwards. Oh, it's oh, Ray. Oh, awesome! You yeah. see Rayzak. Yeah. Oh, it's Kazar. Oh, Ray Kazar. Look at that. So I've hidden the name of the CEO, and that actually was part of getting the thing adopted. That's awesome. I don't know if you know this. You want to hear the story? <laughs> Please. About how, yes. So this was my marketing thing. Yeah. That I did was when it came time to do the naming, and I didn't like the names they were coming up with, and it was flat. So when I decided to write the story. And then when I came up with this idea of, you know, I couldn't make up a word because another one of my all time things I wanted to do was contribute a word to the English language. Uh -huh. I always thought that would just be a cool thing to do. Yeah. And I realized this was probably my best shot, right? Because if I create some character like Pac-Man, everybody knows Pac-Man now. Okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So if I could create a character, if the game was good enough and became popular enough, I would have created a new word. People would know this thing. So what's that thing going to be? And I couldn't think of it. When you try to make up a new word, it, everything sounds stupid. At least it did to me. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I can't just make up a name. That's hard. Let's come. I need a, a reason to do it, a way of doing it, an algorithm for it, essentially. And I thought that's why I came up on the idea of Ray Kazar, and I'll use his name backwards and stuff. And that'll be a key and hook in the marketing. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, so when I, one day before all this started, I, I heard the names and I said to the product manager, I said, look, are you guys still taking submissions? for uh, name ideas. He goes, sure. Yeah, it's coming up. I said, be here tomorrow. I said, I will have something for you. And he goes, okay. So that rest of that afternoon and all night, I stayed at Atari all night that night. And I made up the Yar thing and I wrote the whole story and got it all set. And then I had wow. it typed up in the morning and he shows up and I give it to him and he goes back and okay, there we go. So the next day I see him again. And like, hey, how you doing? He's okay. I said, so did it make it in? Is that so? He goes, yeah, it's under consideration. We're looking at that. And I said, okay. And that's when I started my little my little shtick. Mm -hmm. I said to him, okay, I'd like to tell you something about it, but I don't want you to tell anybody about it because I don't want it to unfairly influence the decision. Okay. And he's like, uh, okay, and I, and I, but you have to promise me you won't tell anybody. I, I promise. I swear. I said, okay. So, you know, Yar, Yar's Revenge? He goes, yeah. I said, what's that spelled backwards? He goes, Yar, uh, Ray. 
I go, okay, and Razak, you know, it's the Razak solar system. So what's that spelled back? And he thinks about it, he goes, Kazar. He goes, Ray Kazar, Ray Kazar. Oh my God. He goes, does Ray know about this? I said, well, of course Ray knows about it. I wouldn't do something like this if, without Ray's approval. Uh -huh. I said, but, um, but it's also, I don't want you, because obviously if that gets out, you know, I, I don't want that to unfairly influence the decision. Yeah. Right. And he's like, okay. So I swore him to secrecy a couple more times and he agreed. And then he took off. And at that point, I know three things. I know the first thing he's going to do is run right back there and tell everyone yeah. this is the case. And I also know that nobody really has the balls probably to go and talk to Ray and question him about this at all or anything. People just tended not to do that. Yeah. And the third thing I know is that's a really good thing because Ray has no idea whatsoever about this. I just totally made this up. And so then, and then, then like a day or two later, he goes, like, guess what? We're going with yours. We're going with yours. And I go, that's great. That's fantastic. Although it occurs to me that I don't really know for sure if really I had a better property and that was something they would have picked anyway, uh -huh. or if it was like my little manipulation that actually made it happen. But I didn't care. I just thought it was so delicious. I really liked the story and the fact that I felt I pulled something. So that was fun. Well, the word has a intergalactic science fiction feel. Yar sounds like otherworldly. Yar, right. Yeah. <laughs> where did, where did um, Zorlon, the Zorlon canon come from? That I just made up. That's perfect. Yeah. So the Zorlon canon, the co-tile, the ion stuff, it was all part of I mean, the ion zone is actually, the story behind it is that it's the... Uh, the Kotile monster came in and it eviscerates planets. So that ion zone, it's the, the actual, my original working title of the game was, or my story title was the Yarian Revenge of Razak 4. So the ion zone is what's left of Razak 4. One of the ah. planets has been destroyed. Wow. And the Yars are coming from, from Razak 3 and Razak 5 to stop the monster <laughs> from destroying any more planets. But that ion zone is the remnant of a destroyed planet. Wow. And that's what that is. So it, 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 I hoped it was an impact story. It was kind of a fun scenario and stuff. Like it was a major battle going on for survival and in the galaxy. And it was, uh, so that was the thing. And the, and the Kotile, I just, the Kotile I made up, but there was something else I always wanted. I always liked the idea of having, I don't like rules, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't like the idea that cues have to be followed by U's. So I, I thought this is a chance to make up where if I make up the word, I can make it whatever I want. Uh -huh. So I specifically made a word that started with a Q that doesn't have a U after it because I just always wanted to do that. <laughs> and so that's where Kotile came from. And Zorlon just sounded kind of cool to me. I just like, you know, Zs are very good for yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. And Zorlon, you know, if it isn't a fabric, it's probably something space or sci-fi. <laughs> and uh, and that's where this stuff came from. I, I did just make those up. This goes back to something you spoke on earlier, that being the primary sole creator of this world, you were able to implement all these aesthetic choices that tapped into your background as a theater major, knowing about storytelling, and, uh, sorry, theater minor, excuse me, and like your, your different skill set. And I wonder like, Nowadays, gaming is so different. Have you ever played the Yars Revenge for Xbox 360? I played it on the PS4, uh, I think, or the PS3. Yeah. And I was very disappointed in it, honestly. Yeah. But they never consulted me. No one ever talked to me about that. Oh, oh weird. So it was interesting. A lot of people thought that was weird. I don't know. I can see, you know, developers get an assignment. They just go do it. But yeah. I was disappointed uh, in the game. And here's why. Because... There were certain principles about Yars. You know how I said there was the there's the player experience. You know, that's what you're really going for is what's going on in the brain of, of the player. Yeah. So the thing to me, what makes Yars Revenge, Yars Revenge, the the essence of Yars Revenge 
is um, a, a ballet of motion. Okay, it's a frenetic uh, twitch action, uh. and there's a movie principle at work in Yars Revenge because there's a movie principle that goes. At least this is what I've heard it said: is that up, down, right, left, up, down, right, left, right? That's what you do. Is if you watch some, like act, like look at the opening of Star Wars. You know, you see something come in from one side of the screen, then something comes up from the bottom, then something comes in from the side. And they keep doing that. In major action sequences, you keep redirecting the eye. You want you want the, you want want to enter the next shot with the eye directed correctly from the previous shot, yeah. but you want to keep moving the action so your eye is traveling around, and that makes it feel like a wider field of view. Whereas if your eye is always in the center of a screen, uh, it's, it just makes the thing feel smaller. It's not as compelling. So I was using that kind of thinking. Uh, and so, and, and the other thing is you have to have free motion in, mm-hmm. in a Yars revenge game. You should go where you want to go at any point in time. That's what you do. You're free to go where you want to go. And the thing that really bugged me about the Yars that they made was they made it what's called a rail game. So a rail game is the term is the developer term for a game where you know some games you run around the play space whatever it is and do what you want to do and some games you just move through the game space and you do what you can while you're moving through but you can't stop moving through the play space. Right. Like Zaxxon was a classic example of that sort of thing. And they didn't do that. So this was a rail game. And it also was basically just Galaxian. It was a 3D Galaxian. It really wasn't a 3D Yars Revenge. Mm. And so that kind of bugged me. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. The idea that they were trying to do a sequel to a game that I had done was cool. Reboots are typically not as great as the original. Yeah, with the yeah. exception of like The Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. It's true that reboot, it is hard to do it because a lot of times people don't put the kind of effort into it that went into the original. And uh, But the, the other thing that's kind of funny about a sequel to Yards Revenge is I've had an idea of a sequel for Yards Revenge that I always kind of wanted to do. And mm. I'm probably still going to do. Sometime mm. in the next couple of years, I may actually... Uh, get together some people and put together this game concept because I've had this game concept for 30 years and I still haven't seen anyone do it. Awesome. So it's a simple, fun, twitch, very frenetic kind of gameplay. And uh, it's just the kind of thing that Yars should be. And the theming of it is it's the training of Yars. It's it's Yarian Olympics, <laughs> right? So it's this is where Yars go to train before they're going to go fight Kotiles. This is yeah. the training place for them. So I just thought that was kind of a cool thing to further the story. But, uh, yeah, so doing a Yara sequel, I wasn't happy with what they did. But, like I said, I use movie principles for Yara's Revenge, right? So I use the idea of sound. So Yara's Revenge has a very elaborate soundscape, hmm. much more so than most games at that time, I think, had. Yeah. Uh, other things that I did for Yara's that were first, I was the first full screen explosion I right. think you've ever seen. I wanted yeah. to have something huge uh, when it went off. I had more elaborate death sequences. Uh, these were the kinds of things that was important to me because these extra touches, I had a lot of animation with color. I would use color to animate. So things would shift color instead of shifting shape and, uh, and would also do the shifting shape. And some of these things, uh, they just seemed like natural things to do to me because I sit and I look at a system, I think, what can I do with this that I haven't seen yet? And what would make this a little more eye popping? What would make this a little cooler? And then the sound, I used um, anticipatory stuff. I used sound, I tried to use sound to set mood, hmm. right? So there are things, there are sounds that shift before game events occur. Mm-hmm. And it's a subtle shift, but I think it changes the level of tension in the player. And so there's this feeling of doom that's going on, 
this feeling of impending, something's going on, and anything that increases your anxiety in a video game is probably pretty good. And that goes back to your point about the, the biofeedback, right? And exactly. as, as a director, it was a whole cinematic experience, which is interesting because you made the first ever game based on a movie, the Indiana Jones game. I did. Yeah. So it was really funny that a movie buff who was trying to use movie principles and stuff ended up doing some of the first movie games. How did that come about? And did you work like closely with Spielberg on that? And like, Uh, I worked with Spielberg on that. I I didn't work closely with Spielberg. Spielberg is the kind of guy who I think selects people he thinks are really good at what they do Mm -hmm. and then lets them do it. I don't okay. think he wanted to be Spielberg's into games. Sure. I mean, he was very into games. And he's a very cool guy. It was meeting Steven Spielberg, I mean, as a real movie buff and fan and stuff, uh, to be able to meet Steven Spielberg was amazing. To be able to work with him was unbelievable. Yeah. But to have him evaluate my work that was a derivative of his work was very tense and very, very nerve-wracking. Yeah. But um yeah, and getting chosen to do Raiders was kind of cool. There's a funny story about that where when I originally went, the first time I went to meet Spielberg, uh, I was to be interviewed to see if I'm going to do Raiders. Okay. Okay, so they said, well, Howard's done with Yars. You know, he could probably do Raiders. So Spielberg wants to talk to whoever's going to do the game. So, so I had to fly down. So I get up super early, which I hate doing, <laughs> go to the airport, take a commercial flight down to L.A. I have a 9.30 meeting scheduled with Spielberg. Wow. Okay, so I make it, you know, from San Jose, so that's about a four or five hundred mile trip to uh, down to the uh, studio. I get there, I get all set, I walk in. It's like nine twenty-five. I've made it right on time. I walk in, and there's the receptionist, and the first thing she says to me is, "Oh, uh, your meeting has been rescheduled to three I'm like, "What?" What I said, I flew here. I said, I, yeah, I have a return flight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like seriously. I said that was. I, I started to think. At first, I was like really annoyed, mm-hmm. you know. And then, but it's whenever I get annoyed, the first thing I think of is, do I really need to be annoyed? What's what's really going on here? And then I realized, okay, so here I am at Warner Studios with nothing to do for like six hours. This could be okay. Right. So I looked at her. I said, well, can you rebook my flight? You know, can you help me out? And she, oh, absolutely. Just give me your tickets. I gave her my tickets and she's going to take care of everything. I thought, well, that's cool. Yeah. And then I said to her, because I'm going to sit in their office for six hours. I said, is it okay if I just sort of cruise around the lot, you know, until then? She goes, oh, absolutely. Go ahead. And I was like. Oh, baby. <laughs> so I got to have a full day unescorted at Warner Studios. I went around. I went into sound stages. I went into places you probably are not supposed to go. The only thing I didn't do was enter any room where there was a red light lit. Okay. I knew that much. But yeah. I just walked around. I stole stuff from sets. <laughs> I took souvenirs. It was like it was like an amazing day. Wow. Wow. And then at the end of like this, and I ate in the commissary with people in costume. It was like, it was like a dream day for like a movie fan, TV right, right. fan. And then at the end of that, I get to go hang out with Steven Spielberg for a while. So that was a really good day. Not bad, Howard. <laughs> You've made the best of it. Yeah. And then when I talked with him, you know, we talked for a while and we played some yards and he was enjoying that. He thought that was cool. And we're chatting. And then at one point, I don't know why. 
I mean, it was true what I was thinking, but I, I said, you know, Stephen, I said, I have this theory uh, that you are an alien. I said, would you like to hear it? And he goes, he goes, yeah. He goes, yeah, tell me. So I just told him, you know, I have my, my whole idea about, you know, in the, in the early 80s, it felt like we really were getting close to contacting aliens and stuff. Right. And I said, it really feels like we're getting there. And I said, but the aliens, I said, I'm going to assume the aliens are smart enough to know that when they approach this planet and they see what's going on, on this planet <laughs> to some degree. I said, they're not just going to show up like in some movie and just go, here we are. And oh my God, and everybody's freaked out. I said, they'll probably send an advanced team to culturalize the planet to prepare us. And I said, and I suspect, you know, that you may be a part of one of these teams, right? Because look at what you've done. You know, you've made these movies. They're some of the first movies where aliens are presented in a congenial and friendly light. Right. And they're seen everywhere in every language all over the world. So I figure, you know, like you're the production arm of this advanced team and your marketing arm is really good and they make sure that whatever you make goes everywhere and gets seen by everyone. <laughs> right. And so this has prepared the planet and now we're really close. So I'm really looking forward to you, you know, showing your real colors, you know, and coming out. <laughs> and I bet he loved that. <laughs> and he did. He really liked it. I think yeah. that got me the game. <laughs> You know, it was like, but he really enjoyed that. And he actually, um, he was interviewed by a, a number of other magazines around the ET stuff. And at one point he had told games magazine about this. And so they called me up to get the quote and I ended up getting quote of the month in games magazine for calling Steven Spielberg an alien. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. After Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, like you had this professional relationship with him then where he respected you as an, as an artist and creator in the video game world. And he wanted to take another chance on you, right, with his blockbuster movie in five and a half weeks to make the E.T. game. Like, he had that much faith in you. Oh, five weeks. Five, um, five weeks. Wow. Hey, don't sell yeah. it short. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, oh. I'd like to think that's true, that he felt it was good. I heard that he did ask for me to do the game. Yeah. And uh, I would also happen to be the only person probably in the world who was willing to try to do the game Yeah. in five weeks. I mean, this was a time where uh, video games took, you know, at least, you know, six months or more. It was rare that a game was done in less than six months. And they had, the negotiations had been stalled and taken long enough. And now uh, here it was, the game, they decided they need the game for the Christmas market, which means it has to be delivered to manufacturing by September 1st, and this was July 27th. So it's uh, five weeks, and uh, five weeks and one day, technically. Okay. But that day was almost over anyway, because I didn't get the call till like mid to late afternoon. Did You probably slept very little during that period. I did not sleep a lot during that period. <laughs> yeah. I did have a uh, development station moved into my home. Wow. So that, because the way I worked it was, I'm not going to get a lot of rest, but the time that what I need to do is make myself as efficient as possible. And one way to make yourself efficient in my, when you're doing creative work is to make everything contribute to the goal, including sleep. So what I would do is when I was stuck on something, whenever I couldn't come up with an answer for something, or I was really trying to figure out how to do something, I'd try to go to sleep. That's the time I would try to go to sleep. Okay. And then I'd get some rest. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you wake up and you suddenly know something, you have an idea. So it was like that. So I made sure there was a development system in my home too, so like I could sleep. And if I woke up with a, with a solution, I could jump right on the system. So this way, I was never more than like two or three minutes away from being able to actively write code 
except when I was actually physically driving between the office and home. And I didn't really go much of any place else for that five weeks yeah. than office and home. You probably had a lot of food delivered. Uh, my manager did. My manager, yeah. Condon Brown, was a very cool guy. And he yeah. was responsible for keeping me alive during the five weeks. So he would occasionally run errands or he would take me. Sometimes he would take me out to eat. He would try and pull me away yeah. from the development station or bring food in and, you know, just basically, you know, run the air conditioner a little bit or something and just, just try and keep me going because this was the summer. Oh, and, yeah. uh, it was, it was, the, it was probably the hardest five weeks of work I've ever done. It was really an unbelievable, weird strain of stuff. And so at the end I was done. Right? I mean, there yeah. were a few other things like, you know, people it's notorious. ET is notorious, right. For some of the problems in the game and stuff. And, I could have shifted. If I would have thought to do it, I probably could have made some significant changes in a matter of four to eight hours if I would have taken one more day. Mm. But the truth of it is, by the time I was done with that five weeks, I was done. And I didn't even want to see the game anymore. It passed quality assurance. Yeah. And uh, was ready to go. Spielberg approved it. You know, and, and Spielberg, you know, we would get together occasionally throughout the development of the games, but we wouldn't do much with the game. We would sort of have lunch together and chat and stuff, and that was actually better time. It was really fun to just chat with him than, than try and, and go back and forth about the game. Yeah. And like you said, he was pretty happy with the way Raiders turned out, so he wasn't... Although there was an interesting story, and I'm actually writing a book about this. Recently, the whole ET experience and my whole Atari experience. Wow. And one of the things I just finished recently was um, the... Uh, when I went down to see Spielberg, the Learjet ride and all this stuff, there was a lot of amazing stuff that went on around E.T. But when it was time to present the design, because I got a phone call one day that said, hey, you know, you want to do E.T.? And I said, okay. And this was a Tuesday. This was July 27th. It was Ray Kazar calling me, actually. Mm. And he said, okay, you're going to do the game. This is like, you know, 4.30 on a Tuesday afternoon. He goes, 8 a.m. Thursday be at the San Jose airport, there'll be a Learjet waiting for you. And that Learjet was going to take me down to see Spielberg and present the design. So I now have like 36 hours to design the game, which is good because I only have five weeks to do the game. I can't spend three or four weeks designing it. You know, okay, right, it. right. But it's still not a lot of time to design a major game. Yeah. And me being who I am, I can't just design the game. I have to do something innovative. I always want to do a breakthrough game, something groundbreaking. That's yeah. very important to me. Yeah. And so I devised another thing, and there were several firsts that ET had that no one had seen before. One of them, one of which is it's played on a 3D world. Right. Think about it. ET takes place on a cube, essentially. And I don't think that had ever been done, have like a 3D world that relates to each other that you can map that way. And, and it also has uh, the idea of positional... Uh, power-ups and mm. stuff. The mm. idea that where you are determines what your capacity is. I think that was kind of a new idea with that. There was a few things that I did of convenience that were also kind of breakthrough stuff. But yeah, it was, uh, and I go down and I present the whole design to him and I lay it out. And the key thing about the design was that I was designing a game that I could do in five weeks. Because doing a game in five weeks isn't a programming challenge, right? It's a design challenge. Mm. You don't try to take a game that ordinarily would take six months and program it in five weeks. That's pure failure, right? What you do is you try and design a game that can be programmed 
in five weeks. And that's what I did. And I think what I did was create a game that could probably be effectively programmed in six to six and a half weeks and did that in five weeks. Yeah. But, um, and so I present the design, I lay it out. Spielberg thinks about it, looks it over and he goes, you know, he goes, couldn't you do something more like Pac-Man? And I'm like, ah, it really blew my mind. I thought really one of the most innovative uh, film directors of our time wants me to do a knockoff. Like eating the Reese's pieces or something like that. Like he just wanted E.T. as Pac-Man, basically. Well, he just, I think he liked Pac-Man. I uh, think he just liked Pac-Man, yeah. thought it was cool. And I could see where he was going with it. I mean, the Pac-Man, I think what he was thinking of was, uh, you know, the scene where the kids are running away on the bikes and the cops are chasing them and they're doing okay. the big climax of the movie. Yeah. I think that's what he was thinking. And that would fit into a maze running around trying to avoid the cops and picking right, up right. what you need. And that would make sense, but it would take longer to program that kind of game. And I don't think I could do that kind of game in five weeks. But it just blew my mind that he was saying, you know, do a knockoff. Right, Do right. a knockoff of something. And, I, and my, I had this impulse to say, well, gee, Stephen, couldn't you do something more like the day the earth stood still? You know, but then I realized, this is Steven Spielberg, you know, <laughs> dig yourself, Howard. <laughs> so I just, I, but what I did was I started explaining to him that, look, I said, I think E.T. is a breakthrough movie. It's an emotional tone movie. There's a lot to it. We need to do something special in a game, not just a knockoff of something else. Yeah. Which was code for, look, Stephen, I can do this game in five weeks. I can't do that game in five weeks. Yeah. I don't think that would work. And uh, and But as soon as I said, he goes, oh, okay. He was cool about it. But, yeah. you know, in retrospect, when you look back on it, he may not have had a bad idea. Mm. <laughs> he might have really been onto something. But uh, but he approved. He signed off on it. You're saying he, absolutely. He was behind you. Yeah. Oh yeah, he was behind me. And I, I, I mean, I never really spoke to him after ET was done. I would have liked to have still gone and dealt with him. But you know, we didn't do. Atari kind of died not that long after that. There was no other movies that he was doing a game for that I was up for. Yeah. So just didn't really have any more uh, interactions with him, which is too bad. How did it feel when you, the reviews came in and everything, like when the game was released, like that must, you had this high at Atari that was, I remember you talked about how it showed you everything life could be and all your needs were met and you were a rock star and you still are, but it was the genesis of that. How did it feel in that six months after Christmas? Uh, Okay, well, one thing you have to really remember or know is that there was no internet. Yeah. Back then. Okay. Okay. So feedback was much slower in coming. And there wasn't this sudden wave of haters and stuff like that. The, uh, the internet and all these all time lists and stuff like that, none of that stuff came out until the 90s, really. Mm. So. Uh, I still heard some negative feedback. There was some things going on about that this wasn't good and there was a problem. But, I mean, if you track the timeline of it, when I finished E.T., everybody was really excited because I had done it. And the company was relieved because they were able to deliver a product because if they couldn't deliver a product, all the money they had spent on the license might have seemed like it was wasted. And that mm. would be unfortunate. Mm. So next, there's the run-up to manufacturing and Christmas. And everybody's really happy and really psyched. And it comes out and it's one of the top selling games. 
Yeah, congrats. That's <laughs> oh, awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. No, it was cool. So what I'm saying is all the feedback on it was really super positive. So I was hearing a lot of good stuff. Yeah. And then seeing I had Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. Both were in the top 10 or maybe the top five of Billboard's sales. And I'm thinking, I'm smoking big cigars. You know, this yeah. is going really well. It isn't until into the next year that I start hearing things from people in the hallways like, you know, uh, Howard, we want you to know you did a really good job with this. We don't blame you. Now, I don't know what they're talking about. I'm yeah. Thinking, blame me for what? I don't know. But I'm just like, oh, okay, great. You're not blaming me. I'm, I'm good A with weird that. compliment, right? It was an odd thing to hear. I started yeah. hearing things like that. and But they also, what happened was um, uh, at some point in either December or early January, I think Atari pre-released numbers that were really bad. And what they did was they undercut Imagic's uh, public offering. Because Imagic was formed by some people out of Atari, partially. And Atari was very bitter about people who left them. And uh, so they had pre-released early. They committed an early release of numbers, which rarely happens. But they let everybody know there was a big problem. Mm. And then it started to become known that there was this big dip in the video game sales and profits and stuff. And then E.T. started to become a focus of that. And then at one point, New Media Magazine uh, actually published an article that said that E.T. was uh, solely responsible for the uh, for the crash of the video game industry, the billion-dollar industry. So I had, with 8K of code, destroyed a billion-dollar industry, which is an awesome sense <laughs> of power. But it, And, of course, that was, wasn't true. They, it sounds like whoever wrote that was looking for a scapegoat. Well, of course. You know, yeah, they yeah. do. It's like... Uh, whenever you have a big story, like there's the movie Atari Game Over. Right. That was made. Great movie. And that was a very cool movie. I was really proud to be a part of that movie. Yeah. That was very cool. And Nolan Bushnell says a thing in that movie that I think is just really amazing. He says that a, a simple explanation that is clear will always have more powerful, more power in the world than a more complex explanation that is true. Right. right, And that's why you get, you know, and in some ways that kind of explains this whole, uh, the absence of truth and the alternate facts and stuff like that, all sure. the uh, conspiracy theory mongering and stuff. People like a simple, clear explanation. And the idea that E.T. ruined the game industry is a simple, plain thing that's clear. Everybody can understand it. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was the worst game of all time. Oh my God, look at this. It's easy to see. It's, nobody who's really been in the business thinks there's any truth to that. If you think about it, it was a billion-dollar industry. So they paid $22 million for the license, even if they paid 40 or $50 million for the uh, production, which I'm not sure it was that much. And that game, even after all the returns, right, still sold a million and a half units. Right? In fact, I think I'm the only programmer who did more than one game whose every game Atari released was a million seller. That's awesome. So, and even E.T. was there. Yeah. But if you think about it, so they're making money back from the 75 million. So they lost less than 75 million on ET. Okay. Um, it's a billion dollar industry. So if losing $75 million on something ends up destroying a billion dollar industry, that doesn't make much sense, does it? You know no. I mean? It just doesn't. It should take more than $100 million to destroy a billion dollar industry. Yeah. And so. It really didn't make sense. But, you know, the other side of it is, in journalism, and you're a journalist, uh, 
So you know how it is. You know, what are your goals mm. in journalism? Whenever you put out something, what's your goal? I think your goal is to uh, certainly to entertain on some level, hopefully to inform on some level, and ideally, I think, to generate social discourse, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. These are the goals. That's what you're going for. And I always looked at video games as media. I didn't look at them as techno technical products. I looked at them as media. So that was my take on it. But when they're doing, whenever you produce a story, you want people to be able to relate to it. Right. Right. And the way, whenever there's a tragedy or a horror or something, they don't just talk about, oh, there was a hurricane. Oh, there was a flood. They pick one person. They pick one family. They put a face show, on it. Exactly. Yeah, they put right. a face on it. Right. That's what they do. Every tragedy needs a face to right. make it relatable because that's the part where we create the simple explanation that's clear. Look at the horror that was visited on this person, and that's happened many, many times. Yeah. So I think E.T. became the face of the crash of the video game industry of the early 80s. And I became the butt behind the face, I think, is the way it kind of went. I mean, being scapegoated like that, you healed from that eventually and became a healer of other people who were brilliant, creative people. That's a very kind take on it. <laughs> um, I've heard it suggested that uh, another way to look at it is that I became a healer to deal with the uh, guilt over creating all the trauma and depression that that game had generated <laughs> is another way to look at it. But the, th the truth yeah. of it is I never saw E.T. as a failure. Yeah. I never saw it as a failure, which doesn't mean it didn't hurt me that it became the worst game. But I, I kind of like it when people call it the worst game. I'll come back to that. Yeah. But um, E.T. always felt like a success. It was yeah. a success for a long time before it went out in the market and stuff. And even to this day, I'll still put it up against any other five-week development. Players don't care how what it took to make a game. They just care what the game experience is. But the, there's still plenty. There are ET fan clubs. There are plenty of people who like the game, plenty of people who hated the game. I never argue with anyone who has an opinion about the game who's played it. What became interesting was ET became a lightning rod for haters. So what's interesting is over the years, as people have said, well, it's the worst game of all time. It's a horrible game. What I always like to ask people is, oh, have you played it? Have you ever played it? Because it's amazing how many people who will tell you what a horrible game it is have never played it. And just jumping on the hater bandwagon because it's a they feel like it's a, the lore has kind of remixed it. But I, researching for this interview, so many people have come up and say the game is great. They love it, and it's not a it's not a travesty, and it's it's just it's 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 a it's it's got it's it's kind of a cult legendary game now right? it does have some of that yeah and it's a you know it's a game that suffered for five weeks you know five weeks cost something and what it really the problem with et is that it was a first it was released at first playable then five weeks you can make a first playable you can't have uh the elaboration and the rumination time as i call it sure that is where a game really congeals and comes together so you could say the problem with et is that i delivered 100 percent of my design concept in most good projects, you deliver a much smaller percentage of your design concept because it gets better than the design concept. Right. ET didn't have a chance to get better than the design concept, so this was the design concept. But, And I don't believe by any stretch of the imagination that it's actually the worst game ever made on the 2600, but I kind of like it. Yeah, I like it when people identify it that way because Yars Revenge is frequently identified as one of the best games right. of all time on that system. <laughs> And so as long as E.T. is the worst, 
I have the greatest range of any game designer in history. <laughs> so I kind of like that. That's the that's the benefit of being first, right? Being in the, being one of the inventors of the of the field of video games, which now is such a part of 21st century life. And when you went to get your credentials to become a therapist, how was that process? Like, like when did you, this will be our last question. You, you realized, okay, I want to do something else. And like, how long did it take from you having the idea to getting your credentials? And I asked that because you did ET in such a short period. You got your degree and your master's in such a short period. I have a history of accelerating things, don't I? Yeah. Because I don't like to wait around to get to do something. I like to get there and do it. Yeah. I do like that. And I like doing things fast. I yeah. just like doing things fast. So it was a very natural thing for me. So that's a great question. So I can tell you almost the exact moment okay. that I decided to become a therapist. And that was, I think, February of 2007 when I wasn't really getting anywhere with uh, my tech career. It was kind of uh, uh, fizzling out because I had taken some time off to be a filmmaker. Right. I did some filmmaking for a while and I wrote some books and I was doing some other endeavors and I kind of got out of tech for a while because I was kind of tired of tech. And uh, getting back in was tough because everybody thinks for some reason people change so much that you can't manage them anymore because I had become a manager. And so I wasn't trying to stay on top of technology. But uh, but it was it was it was getting very hard to find a job and I was really feeling bad. And someone said to me, So what are you what are you what are you gonna do? What are you trying to do? Actually, what happened to me was someone who I was, I was seeing at the time said, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I said, well, uh, I want to get a job, you know, in tech, you know, because my body's addicted to eating, you know. It's like I got to, <laughs> I need to keep making money and stuff. Right. And they said, no, no, not what do you think you should do. They said, what do you want to do? What do you, if, you, if, if nothing else mattered, if you could do anything you want, what do you want to do? And instantly I just said, well, I want to be a therapist. I knew that's what I want to do. Mm. I did not see it as practical. So that was February of 2007. So, and they said to me, why don't you go and look and see what it takes to become a therapist? You know, just, just look, just take a look and see what's involved. Yeah. I thought, okay. And I started to look at it and I saw some opportunities and some options. And so what I did was, uh, I went and I looked it over and I realized, okay, there's some programs, but I don't have all the schooling for it yet. So, uh, in the fall, by the fall of 2007, I had enrolled in some community college courses to make up what background I needed before I went in. I applied to some schools, got rejected by one, which totally blew my mind. Because I thought if there's anything I should be able to do with my academic and my business background is to get accepted to a graduate school. And your fame, <laughs> let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, well, what's interesting is that didn't really come into play. Nobody, okay. Most people in the therapy world were not attuned to video games. There were very few people had any idea who I was, and I never told people about it. In fact, you should see some of the faces on some of the people when they would say, some, every once in a while, someone would come in and they had seen an interview or maybe seen a movie or a documentary that I was in, and they go, wait a minute, was that you? Was that you? And I'm like, yeah. They're like, what are you doing here? You know, same thing you are. I'm becoming a therapist. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. It was yeah. kind of interesting. But I didn't, that was not really a thing going on. This was a world that was mostly popular with people who were not in touch with that world. So there was very little crossover. Okay. Yeah. But I just started taking courses. And then I started my graduate work in uh, like, uh, the late in the early spring of 2008. 
Okay. So this is a process that's supposed to take two and a half to three years to get your master's. And because I was working at the same time, because mm. uh, I did find, what, what happened was I couldn't seem to get a job to save my life in tech. As soon as I applied for and started to commit to doing uh, the schooling and the therapy stuff, somebody called me out of the blue. In fact, it was Blue Shift. <laughs> was the name of the place. Oh, wow. And offered me a job as an engineering manager. And so I said, okay. So I took that job and used that to pay for school mm. uh, while I was going. And then when it, the school got to the point where it was just about time to switch from uh, an academic uh, leaning to a clinical thing because you have to start doing your hours because you have to get once you get your degree you still have to have 3,000 hours of experience to become a licensed therapist in California wow so that's a lot of hours and how am I going to get that's going to take me forever to get those hours some people spend six seven eight ten years getting their hours and I wasn't going to do that right so I got laid off which I didn't plan, but it just happened right about the time I was supposed to transition to the clinical stuff. So I thought, perfect. Now I have all my time to devote to that. And so I was able to scrape by uh, during those years. And so I graduated in 2011, uh, like again, spring. So I took three years to get the degree. And then I did my hours in a record like, you know, this is where I accelerated. Right. I got all my hours in like 14 months. Wow. Uh, I just, I got some while I was doing my degree and whatever I had left, I was able to work that in about 14 months. Then there was a five month waiting period to do the exam, took my exams, passed those in November of uh, 2012. So from the, the first moment I thought I'm going to, I'm seriously going to look at it was about February of 2007. I started to enroll in classes in fall of 2007. Uh, I really started to go the day I read my first class in, uh, towards my master's of, uh, counseling psychology was, uh, like March 31st of 2008, you know, not that I'm keeping track. <laughs> and, uh, and I got my license on November 14th of 2012 so it was about four and a half nearly five years that's fast huh uh to go from the first day of graduate school to a license it's pretty fast it's faster than most people do i think you can do it faster but not many people do the other yeah. thing that made it interesting was that i was a tech guy i was an engineer yeah you don't see it you see a lot of people from different careers going into therapy you don't see many engineers become therapists and it was very interesting because therapists have a real, there's a lot of prejudice about therapists that therapists have for engineers. And there's a lot of prejudice that engineers have for therapists. Right. And I was both, I was the person who could bridge the gap. You know, therapists think that all engineers are on the autism spectrum. That's all they are. And engineers think therapists are all a bunch of ungrounded space cadets and woo woo people who have no idea what reality is and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So, Which is unfair on both sides, right? It is ridiculous yeah. on both. And each side is losing a real benefit. You right. Know, there's a lot of engineers who could use a little more help than they're getting, and there's a lot of therapists who could use more clients than they're getting. <laughs> yeah. They could really get together. But the people always think it's odd the transition from being an engineer to a therapist. And what I tell them is, no, it's not. To me, it's very natural. Because you think about it, between engineers and therapists, we're all systems analysts, right? It's yeah. just that I've moved on to much more sophisticated hardware is the way I look at it. <laughs> and being able to speak in those terms, your clients, a lot of them who are engineers, can relate to you. And I'm sure 
offer metaphors to explain their pain or what they're going through. Exactly. I'm the Silicon Valley therapist, right? I've been through product development. I have done creative, technical uh, projects of all kinds. And not just tech stuff, but also general creative stuff, writing, production. I've done a lot of these things. So a lot of therapists just haven't had that experience. So if you think about it in terms of money and time, so if you want your therapist to understand the kinds of pressures you go through and what's going on at your job, you're going to have to pay for a few sessions where you're just explaining where you're coming from. And that's that costs money, right? Right. So I walk in and I know exactly what their whole situation and experience is. I mean, I know not exactly. They have to tell me the details. But I know what it means to be on a tight schedule. If anybody knows what a tight schedule is, you know, yeah. I do. I know what it's like to be overcommitted to your job and have your life kind of disappear. I know what it's like to face the kind of pressure and demands from work that can destroy your family, that can really call, you know, help make you lose your support system at a time when you need it most. These are the kinds of things that I really understand and can, so I can sit down with someone in a couple of minutes, get to a level of understanding that some therapists might take several sessions because they just haven't experienced that world and it's hard to relate. It's really hard to relate to some of the things that go on in the software world if you haven't experienced them because the software world is a very different kind of place than most industrial America. And you do counseling online, right? For people in California and and you do career coaching for people outside of California? I do. I I do online actual therapy, psychotherapy with people in California, like you said. Wow. I do coaching internationally with people anywhere. I can do life coaching and career coaching. I also do an interesting thing on the side. I do a corporate uh, consulting where what I do is help uh, either founders or groups of key employees who may be having uh, interpersonal issues, I can come in and help resolve those. Because, you know, and particularly like in startups and things like that, if your founders are working well together, it doesn't guarantee success. But if your founders are really stuck in a bad place, that can guarantee failure. Mm. So what I can do is do, it's sort of like a version of family therapy because being co-founders is very much like being married in a lot of ways, being part of a family. Right, yeah. And so what I can do is come in and help them see the difference between uh, the points of conflict they're dealing with and what the real issues may be. And that can bring a lot of compassion and a lot more empathy and understanding of the situation. And that can ease tension. And that can make the general work environment much more comfortable and pleasant and ultimately more successful. And having managed people, you then that's another skill set you bring, right? Yeah, I've I've been the engineer. I've been the technical manager. I've been the project director and I've been the overall engineering manager for a department before. I've done a lot of these things. So I understand things at a variety of levels from, you know, the grunt to the executive. I also spent time in market communications. I've done a lot of writing projects. I've done project proposals. Uh, so uh, when you get to marketing people, salespeople, I, w- I had a real estate broker's license for a while. So I've been, undergone a lot of sales training and practice some of that. So whether it's sales, wow. marketing, management, or engineering, I I can speak their language. Because a lot of times yeah. the conflicts you see in companies is more about um, people in what I call violent agreement. They're saying similar things, but they're saying them in ways the other people can't hear them, so they end up in conflict. Okay, And yeah. so I'm able to sort out the jargon and say, look, when they say this, here's what they mean, right? And they'll agree, and I'll go, but you're really saying the same thing. You guys are actually on the same page. right? So why are you arguing? 
And when you can reduce that kind of conflict, you open the door to a lot more productivity and a lot less lost productivity. So in some ways, what I say is each, each area of a company develops its own jargon, and I'm a jargonaut. <laughs> right? I can help people resolve the jargonology differences and get down to the real essence of the work they're trying to do more productively. And that's what I bring to a company. It's a, like a metaphor for the code wall that you decode in Yard's Revenge, right? That you are picking apart and allowing this spaceship to go through. Nice, right. Yeah. You know, It shows up with all the glitter and stuff, but underneath yeah. it is really just the fundamental message of the commands and the code. And when you yeah. can get down to that, if you can help people see that at a more elemental level, suddenly things become clearer. And then when things are clear, they're always less threatening. Howard, this has been a really great conversation. And um, I, I really appreciate your time and your thoughts. And I wanted to ask if where, where do you like to direct people to um, support your work or to work with you or to learn about your upcoming book? So I'm doing the book and that's yeah. coming up. But if you want to know anything about me, there's just two places to go. You can go to hswarshaw.com or you can go to onceuponatari.com. Between those two places, anything you want to find about me or whatever's coming up is bound to be there. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Great to meet you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Howard. Still stabbing. Rome, 44 BC. Friends, Romans, countrymen. Let me your ears and I'll speak to them I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him Lying bloody on the steps cause we could not save him See the evil men do lives after them Good interred in their bones so I'm asking when The poor cried, why did Caesar weep And refuse the crown, how many times three? He was my friend, faithful and just Brutus thought you do this, now you're losing my trust Romulus and Remus did the spinning in their graves Cause the noblest Roman has misbehaved Woe to the hands that shed this blood Fierce civil strife and I really had enough A2 Brute, you better say farewell You better say your prayers cause I'm sending you to hell Blood, guts, a body on the floor Julius Caesar, your reign is no more Blood, guts, a body on the floor Julius Caesar, your reign is no more Blood, guts, a body on the floor Julius Caesar, your reign is no more Blood, guts, a body on the floor Julius Caesar, your reign is no more Those that will hear me speak, take a breather You may hate me, call me a creature Julius, he's been a great leader But behold, we had to slay Caesar We grieve, may cry today But he would've brought drama and tidal waves And if I offend you, speak right away Would you rather live Free or die a slave I foresee the future Wars of confusion and us in the stupor Make no mistake, I don't hate my ruler I just love Roe more, we can't lose her So I need you to be patient Not like Mark Anthony over there hating My heart is breaking too, don't be mistaken But civilization has got to awaken We got blood, guts, a body on the floor Julius Caesar, your reign is no more Blood, guts, a body on the floor Julius Caesar, your reign is no more Blood, guts, a body on the floor Julius Caesar, your reign is no more Blood, guts, a body on the floor Julius Caesar, your reign is no more Where the eyes of March in April 2 Claudius and Brutus, we are coming after you With Caesar's ghost, so thirsty for revenge You'll be begging for mercy when we finally meet again Yo, I did it, not for me, but for my government I feel like I belong up in the rubbish bin I made a covenant, he was my brother Man, I'm haunted by it, that's my punishment We got zero forgiveness, your business was sickness You killed the greatest leader, Rome never witnessed Oh, pardon me, did you see the bloody sheet? That's why I can't be gentle, why I can't be meek? And it's staying my mental, I'm so regretful Made a deal with the devil with my soul, I I killed not even half so good a will Goodbye my servant Caesar now be still got blood, guts, a body on the floor Julius Caesar your reign is no more Blood, guts, a body on the floor Julius Caesar your reign is no more Blood, guts, a body on the floor Julius Caesar your reign is no more Blood, guts, a body on the floor Julius Caesar your reign is no more Hey. 
I'm Cassius, not quite as loyal as Lassius. Rome's in need of a bit of liberation. Don't you see? Let me give a demonstration. Me and my men have been conspiring with the violence. A while and tonight was the night that we finally decided the time is the right to provide the eye to mark, mark the demise of a tyrant. Met Caesar on the steps of the Senate, about to free his neck from the liquid within it. We crowded round him and then just in a minute we were thrusting him in him, lost in a blood lost and inhibited. Until he couldn't resist and lay limp in a lump. Wouldn't summon the physician cause he's finished. No longer in the position to dismiss a petition, he would've lived if he'd listened. We got blood, guts, a body on the floor. Julius Caesar, your reign is no more. Blood, guts, a body on the floor. Julius Caesar, your reign is no more. Blood, guts, a body on the floor. Julius Caesar, your reign is no more. Blood, guts, a body on the floor. Julius Caesar, your reign is no more. Cry havoc, let's slip. The dogs of war. 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 Still stabbing. Slice. Thank you, Howard. That was great. It was great to be able to interview him. And I wanted to mention that I just emailed Howard out of the blue. I wrote an email. I sent him a link to my TED Talk. I told him I was a fan of his work. And he amazingly wrote me back and uh, let me come interview him at his beautiful house. So that was dope. Next week, it's not as much of a happy interview, but it's necessary. I'm interviewing a friend of mine who it's kind of a long story. Her name is Lisette Reimer. And a lot of you may recognize her son, Patrick Wood uh, is her son, who I wrote 23 about. And she just wrote a book about her son. And uh, I've shouted her out earlier in the podcast. I saw she just joined the Patreon, which uh, was really nice of her. But she um, she wrote a book about what it's like dealing with the loss of a son, losing a kid to suicide. And we talked at length about the healing and what we both have gone through and her work and outreach and and f- searching for answers and it was really interesting going back to his house where I'd been after he passed and then being back there now gosh 13 years later how the healing started to happen but that's next week's podcast very interesting listen like just just to hear about grief and depression and how to look for signs of it and how we can be there for our friends to love them so anyway uh come see us on tour nerdcoretour.com and I'll be in the UK. First show is Saturday. So uh, the next few podcasts will be coming at you from England and Scotland, maybe. Who knows? But stay tuned. Thank you all for listening. And thank you, Howard, for being on the show. Bye, everyone.